Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'm a day late in posting today's podcast because, well, it wasn't the one that I had originally intended to produce this week. In fact, I spent the past weekend working on what I thought you'd be listening to right now. But then I checked my email yesterday morning, and there was a message from Chris Pezza. As you know, uh, Pez has taken over the lead for the Planque Norte lectures at Burning Man, and he sent me the first batch of this year's recording with this brief message. <laughs> Quote, You should have access to STE-002 within the hour, containing Cory Doctorow's talk, which I would highly recommend starting with. It was an incredible performance that is highly relevant, and I think people will go wild for it. End quote. Now, one of the reasons that I handed over the Planque Norte lectures to Pez is because I trust his judgment implicitly. And even though I'm no longer an integral part of Planque Norte, it's, well, it's still my baby. So, taking Pez at his word, I immediately put aside my weekend's work and began listening to the talk that you and I are about to hear right now. And I discovered that Pez was correct. This is a truly important talk and well worth your time to take it in. Now, I'm sure that most of our fellow saloners know who Cory Doctorow is, because, well, it's been almost impossible to miss his name attached to uh, books and articles all over the place. I've also read several of his novels, and uh, just now I thought that I'd check to see how many he has written. Well, was I ever surprised when I learned that he has over 40 books listed on Amazon. My God, Corey, <laughs> I've only written five non-technical books in my 73 years, and I'm worn out just thinking about how much work those few books took. For what it's worth, uh, when I was working as a technical writer, I produced quite a few tech manuals. But that was a job, you know, with deadlines and a paycheck each month. But to write novels in the hopes that one will eventually get paid for all of that work takes significantly more internal fortitude than any non-writer can even imagine. Actually, uh, if I remember correctly, Pez tried to arrange for Corey to speak at the 2014 Palenque Norte lectures, but uh, their schedules didn't permit it then. Fortunately, uh, this year John Gilmore, who is uh, one of the foundation stones for Camp Soft Landing, where these talks are hosted each year, well, he was able to help Pez book this year's talk, so thank you to John and Pez for this wonderful talk as well. Now, as you know, I've been a geek for most of my life, and I'm still licensed to practice law in Texas, so I thought that I have a pretty good handle on both law and tech. But when I began listening to this talk, and after Corey had been talking only for about 15 minutes, I found myself standing up at my desk and shouting, Those dirty bastards! <laughs> and if you don't become as incensed about the information that Corey passes along in this talk, then you'd better listen to it again, because your personal freedom is being challenged by the massive invasion that our now-necessary computer devices have brought about. This is serious business, and it directly affects you. Hey, y'all. So we're going to get started without further delay. We have Mr. Corey Doctorow here, popular science fiction author and Electronic Frontier Foundation activist. Um, and he's going to talk to you today about uh, 
the Internet of Things, poisoned at birth by the inkjet printer business model. Here's Corey. Hi there. Sorry, uh, I got stuck in the whiteout there. Hence, hence my being late. My wife who left after me got here before me. That's how bad the whiteout was. So, uh, we live in a world that's made out of computers. Uh, and I don't mean in the sense of the Internet of Things videos where you see like people walking into houses and waving their arms and all the lights turn on. And then they, they say, uh, tea, black, hot, Earl Grey, and like magically the kitchen wakes up and starts making them tea. I don't mean in that sense, although I want you to think for a moment about how creepy that Internet of Things vision is if you don't trust the computers running your house. Because a house where wherever you are, you can gesture at it and talk to it, it will respond to you. Is a house where wherever you are, there is a camera watching you and a microphone listening to you. And the only basis you have for the only basis you have for believing that that camera is not sharing views of you throughout your home with someone else is whether or not you trust the computers. I don't mean that we live in that world of the future where everybody dresses like an extra out of Tron. I mean that today we are living in a world that is largely made out of computers. Um, so uh, you may have seen in the New York Times this year there was an ad. Uh, or an article, rather, about uh, the subprime car lending industry. So now that the subprime housing bubble has popped, Wall Street needs a new thing to financialize from poor people, and that's cars that they can't afford. So they take people who are poor credit risks, and they loan them money to buy cars, and then they make bonds out of those loans, right? So every time you pay your loan, an investor gets some money paid back on her bond. And they want to make those bonds valuable, so they want to make sure that you keep your payments up, and that you don't run away with the car and that they can't repo it. So there's about a million of these cars on America's streets today, and they're all fit with location-aware, networked ignition override switches. So if you're a day late on your payments, they have their own independent sound system, and if you're a day late on your payments, your car shouts at you, uh, you are late on your payments, you are late on your payments, you are late on your payments. But if you stop making payments, or if you violate the terms of your rental, of your uh, loan rather, like it may say you're not allowed to leave a, a certain area, then your car won't start anymore. It has an ignition kill switch. Um, so the most salient fact about a car these days is not its transmission or whether it runs on solar or petrol or diesel. It's what kind of informatics are in the engine. Because um, we've seen already people attack those cars by getting into the dealer's servers and immobilizing every car that dealer ever sold, right? So the most salient fact about a contemporary vehicle is its computer. Your car is a computer that you ride down the highway at at 60 miles an hour or 5 miles an hour on the gate road. So a 747 is a flying Sun Solaris workstation in a very fancy aluminum case connected to some scarily badly secured SCADA controllers, right? A plane is a computer you fly in. So all of these things in the Internet of Things, all of these things that are computers and fancy cases, are being born with the worst of technology's business models. It's the, uh, the inkjet printer business model, where they sell you something either at cost or at a loss or maybe even at a modest profit, but they anticipate that most of the revenue from that thing will come from you buying um, aftermarket consumables for it forever. So, you know, they sold you the toaster. They want to sell you the bread as well. And they don't want you to use third-party bread. They want to be able to mark up the bread as much as they can. That's the inkjet business model. That's why printer ink costs more than vintage champagne. It's why 3D printer nylon costs more than filet mignon. It's, it's not because it's intrinsically valuable. It's because it's locked so that you can't um, use third-party components in it. And um, 
there are a lot of reasons why companies want the inkjet printer business model. So they want to control the market in consumables. Um, they also want to control the market in, in, in parts. So they want to make sure that if it breaks, that you only buy parts from them so they can charge arbitrary markups on those parts. They want to make sure that if you want to add a new part to it, if you want to add a new connector or an attachment, that you only buy their attachments. You know, wouldn't it be great for car companies if instead of plugging any appliance into your cigarette lighter to charge it, the car company could issue licenses to certain companies to charge their devices through their lighter and use some kind of computer magic to figure out whether or not you were using a licensed charger or an unlicensed charger. They could have a new business stream. So a lot of these uh, Internet of Things companies are anticipating that they can control the parts. Um, they also want to control the apps. So many of you probably have fruit-flavored devices where there's only one store you're allowed to legally buy apps from. And so um, those fruit-flavored devices, they... they um, uh, charge the software vendors who make the programs that you run on your computer, they charge them 30% of what you pay to Apple. The 30% goes in Apple's pocket and the other 70% is handed off to the vendor uh, for the you know service of having like uh, taken a file and put it on a server and collected a payment for it. 30% is a pretty high markup. And normally you'd expect there to be another business that would come along and say, well, we're going we're gonna to give it 20% or 15% or we're not going to take anything because we're a cooperative software vendors. But if you can control the app store, then you can charge software vendors whatever you want for the privilege of selling to customers. The customers become a product, right? You are a product for uh, the app store, for the companies that make the app stores of the things that you own, because they can sell the fact that you own their device to software vendors and then extract rents from those software vendors for reaching you. They become gatekeepers to you. And then there's also the business of being able to make covenants. So... Um, uh, I want to sell a phone, and I know that the easiest way to sell a phone is to have the customer not pay for it at all. Instead, they go to a carrier, and the carrier buys the phone, and then they quote-unquote give it to the customer in exchange for being locked into a, a long, terrible relationship with that carrier. And the carriers want to be able to control functionality because they want to sell you the features of their network onesie-twosie, right? They want to be able to say, well, this tethers this device but not that device. And so they want to be able to control what kind of software you can load on the phone. Because if they can say to the carrier, if you sell our phones to your customers, we'll promise you that they can never install software that will let them tether devices unless they paid you for the privilege of it. Well, that's a covenant that they can make more money out of, right? That, that gives them a new return on their investment in the engineering for that phone. So everybody wants this business model. They want this inkjet printer business model. Now, normally, if you have a market for stuff, this doesn't work, right? If you say, well, I've got this phone and it only has one software market and I have unreasonable conditions for the, for the people who want to sell into it, someone else starts another marketplace. Markets don't solve all of our problems, but they solve that one pretty well, right? If it's like, in order to drink in my cafe, you have to allow me to shower you with abuse, someone starts a cafe next door where they don't, you get the coffee and not the abuse, right? That's, that's what we expect normal markets to do. But in America and increasingly around the world, we have a law that prohibits doing this. In 1998, Congress passed a law called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, DMCA, excuse me. The DMCA is a long, co uh, complicated, really technical copyright law that was supposed to make America's judicial system or legal system ready for the 21st century. You, you're probably familiar with the DMCA because it's the author of all your favorite videos on YouTube, right? This video has been taken down due to a claim under the DMCA. But there's another part of the DMCA, not the takedown part, a part called Section 1201. And what Section 1201 does is it prohibits removing a lock that controls access to a copyrighted work. So if there's a copyrighted work and there's a lock that prevents you from accessing it, 
the DMCA makes it a felony punishable by up to five years in prison and a $500,000 fine for a first offense to remove that lock. And that is without regard to whether or not you're, you're committing an act of piracy, right? Without regard to whether you're allowed to access the work behind that. I write science fiction novels. If I had a Kindle and my novel was locked in that Kindle, bypassing the lock to access the work that I hold the copyright to is still a felony, right? It's against the law to remove the lock, regard, regardless of whether you are doing something illegal once you remove the lock. And the thing about the DMCA, about this part of the DMCA, 1201, is that it has almost no litigation history. Almost no one has ever stood up to a claim under the DMCA, so there's been almost no judges who've ever ruled on the DMCA. And as a result, we don't really know whether or not judges would hold that it passes constitutional muster, whether or not um, uh, prosecuting someone under the DMCA would be successful. So what happens is is if you're thinking of doing something that violates the DMCA because you're a, a researcher or you're an entrepreneur starting a company or you're an archivist who needs to break, de- uh, uh, break a, a lock to get access to a work to archive it, you go to your general counsel and you say, am I allowed to do this? And they say, to be honest, we don't really know. There's not much litigation history. What litigation history there is isn't very promising. And the penalty for getting it wrong is really, really bad. So you probably shouldn't do it. So the DMCA actually goes beyond what it probably says because nobody even wants to find out what its contours are. Right? It's, it's, it's this kind of enormous, what, what they call a minatory presence, like the minotaur at the, at, the, uh, at the front of the labyrinth. We don't know how badass the minotaur is, and no one wants to find out. Right? So everybody just steers clear of violating the DMCA and talking about it. Now, why hasn't there been much litigation history? Well, it's because the people who rely on the DMCA get to choose who they sue. So generally speaking, if you're someone who's violating the DMCA in a way that courts are probably going to be favorable to, they don't bring an action against you. But if you're violating the DMCA in a way that a court might look down on, they do bring an action against you. And if you're dumb enough to stand up to them, you lose. And then we get all of our litigation history goes the wrong way. So um, there are a couple of examples of this that relate to the work the Electronic Frontier Foundation, for whom I'm I'm working again, I'll I'll get to that later, uh, with whom we've been involved. So the first one is the 2600 case. Do any of you know 2600, the Hacker Quarterly? It's an amazing little magazine. Terrible defendant. I love 2600. I've written for 2600. I have a subscription to 2600. And in around 2000, 2600 published source code to break DRM, to break the locks on DVDs, the DECSS program. Right? And this is pretty classic First Amendment stuff. A printed publication that you can buy in a bookstore publishes some math. And Congress has passed a law that says that publication is illegal. Right? That's classic First Amendment. Generally speaking, you go to a judge and you say to the judge, math is one of the th- ways that human beings express themselves. It's a form of expressive speech. Congress can't prohibit me from doing this. That's what the First Amendment says. And the judge says, off you go. But there's a problem with 2600 being your tw- test case. Actually, there's a bunch of problems. The first one is 2600 is in New York. And New York judges are not the most tech-savvy judges, especially in 2000. New York judges were like, uh, still talking about the information superhighway. Um, the second problem is that 2600 calls itself the Hacker Quarterly, right? <laughs> and the third problem is that what they were doing was not breaking uh, uh, digital rights management, not breaking a software lock in order to do something that everyone could see should be lawful. They were breaking the lock in a way that there were some lawful uses and some un- unlawful uses. It probably would have helped people pirate DVDs. And so when we defended 2600, the judge said this has nothing to do with free speech. This is about whether people should be allowed to protect their investments 
or whether you should be allowed to steal anything you want if you can break the lock off of it. We had our asses handed to us. Now, four years later, a guy named Ed Felton was also threatened under the DMCA. Now, Ed is the right defendant. He's a Princeton computer scientist who's just been made deputy CTO of the White House. And he was the inaugural CTO of the FTC in the last administration. And Ed was part of a team who broke a digital lock that was going to be used to restrict access to music. And they wrote a paper about it that they were going to present at the 10th annual Usenix Security Conference, which is a learned academic conference. And we really wanted a judge to hear a case from the record industry in which they said, Princeton mathematicians should not be allowed to talk about statistics at learned conferences if record executives say that they shouldn't. Because we think that that's the case that a judge would say, you know what, this law is a really bad idea. So we stepped up to defend Ed, and the record industry dropped its suit. They even offered us a covenant saying they would never come after Ed for breaking this, this particular piece of thing, so we couldn't get what's called a declaratory judgment. When you have a threat against you, even if they withdraw the threat, you can ask a judge. You can say to the judge, look, we have reason to believe this threat may reoccur. Tell us how we would come out. We, ha we have the right to know. We have standing to know how this case would proceed. But they, they were smart enough that they didn't do it. So we've never been able to choose our battlefield in the DMCA. And as a result, it's kind of crept along year after year, long past its sell-by date. This ridiculous law from 1998 is still on the books in 2017. Now, in 2004, it looked like we might get a shot at it. In 2004, two companies brought actions under the DMCA. One is Lexmark, which is a division of IBM. They make printers. They went after someone who was jailbreaking printer cartridges to refill them. The other one was Skylink. They make garage door openers. And they went after someone who jailbroke their garage door openers to make cheap remotes for them because they charged a lot of money for the remotes. And we went to the federal circuit. And the federal circuit judge, federal circuit judges are usually idiots about this stuff, but the federal circuit judge was amazing. Federal circuit judge said, there are no copyrighted works in your garage door owner except for the digital lock. The only thing that the digital lock protects access to is the digital lock. So removing the digital lock does not violate copyright. This is purely anti-competitive. Same with Lexmark. We thought we would get it. But a funny thing happened between 2004 and 2015, which is that now there are copyrighted works inside of everything. Right? Your light bulb has a full-on operating system and a TCP IP stack that comes on a chip for 60 cents. And so no one is ever going to be able to argue again that the digital lock is protecting nothing except itself because right now it's so cheap to put a copyrighted work in every single piece of electronics, no matter how trivial, no matter how functional, that everything is now falling under the purview of the DMCA. And so um, uh, we are increasingly owning devices that are uh, designed to be sort of computers that we inhabit. I talked about that a little before. Um, but I want you to get an appreciation of how significant this is. So if you live in a modern house, uh, whether it's in a cold climate or a hot climate, chances are it's very heavily insulated and extremely well sealed. And it's uh, got a computer-controlled respiration system, an HVAC system, that controls the moisture and uh, expiration of, of air and moisture in and out of that building. That building is a computer that you live in, and the reason that you can tell is if you take the computer out of that building, it starts to fill up with black mold. This is what we found out in Florida, right? We turned off the power to all those subprimes in Florida after the 2008 crisis. A couple of years later, they had to scrape them down to the foundation slabs because the most salient fact about those houses is their computers. Take the computer out of those houses, and they are permanently uninhabitable. They're scrap. Um, 787s, I told you about 747s, 787s, the new Boeing Dreamliner, have to be rebooted every 248 days or they crash. They literally crash. 
In 2013, uh, a sadly departed security researcher from Australia named, uh, or not from Australia, in Australia named Barnaby Jack presented his work on implanted defibrillators. These are amazing technology. If um, your heart is prone to stopping, you can, excuse me, you can go to the doctor and the doctor will slice you open and she'll stick a computer attached to a powerful battery in your chest cavity and that computer will listen to your heartbeat and if your heart stops beating, it will shock you back to life and you will go on living. Now, doctors want to get telemetry off of your implanted defibrillator, and they want to update the firmware on your implanted defibrillator. And it's hard to attach a USB cable to a computer that's inside your chest cavity. So these things have wireless interfaces, because everything has a wireless interface, because it's so cheap that you might as well put a wireless interface in it. We're basically living in microwave ovens. And so this thing has a wireless interface, and it's a copyrighted work, so it's against the law to look at it too closely or, or, or pay attention to it or jailbreak it or add new firmware to it. So Barnaby Jack showed that because of this funny state that these implanted defibrillators live in, where third parties aren't allowed to audit them and tell you what they find that he could reprogram them from 30 feet away and cause them to seek out other defibrillators, like when you went to the defibrillator clinic and everybody else who'd had one implanted was there, seek them out and reprogram them, and then at a set date in the future to administer lethal shocks to everyone who'd been affected, right? When Dick Cheney had his, his defibrillator implanted, he had the wireless interface turned off. All of his upgrades involve a scalpel, but no one can give him a heart attack from 30 feet. So... This ripoff stuff, this is bad. And that's the intended consequence of using the DMCA in this, in this way. This is what the inkjet printer business model is for. It's to return higher revenues on engineering investments by locking customers in to covenants, to renewables, to uh, code, to features, and so on. That's what it's for. That's the intended consequence. But the really bad news here is not the fact that you're going to be a kind of feudal tenant in the IT fields for the rest of the future. The really bad news here is how it interacts with security, and that's the unintended consequence. So um, the DMCA not only makes it a felony to jailbreak a device, but it makes it a felony to give people information they could use to jailbreak a device. So if you discover a mistake the programmer made, if there's a flaw, what, what they call a vuln or a vulnerability in the code, then um, if you know about that, that can be the thing that you use to insert your own software into the device and jailbreak it and add the features the manufacturer doesn't want you to add. And so it's a felony to tell people about flaws in these devices that they live in, that they have inside their bodies, that are literally have the power of life and death over them and whole populations. It's a felony publishable by up to five years in prison. Now, this matters a lot because we have one experimental methodology for discovering whether or not security works, and that's disclosure. Because anyone can design a security system that works so well that they themselves can't think of a way of breaking it, but all that means is that you've designed a security system that works on people who are stupider than you, right? <laughs> to understand why this experimental methodology is the only one we have, you only need to cast your mind back to how we got to where we are today. So before we had science, we had a thing that looked a lot like science called alchemy. And alchemists did what scientists do. They observed phenomena in the natural world. They formulated hypotheses about the causal relationships between these phenomena. This causes that. They made up experiments that tested their hypotheses. So, so far, that's science, right? But then they didn't tell anyone what they discovered or what they thought they discovered. And there is a bottomless human capacity for self-deception. If you think that you were probably right going into your experiment, you have a tendency to look at results 
that uh, prove your hypothesis and to ignore or downplay results that disprove your hypothesis. And this is why every alchemist discovered for himself in the hardest way possible that drinking mercury was a bad idea. Right? <laughs> and then after 500 years of this, alchemists actually did manage to convert something base into something precious because they started publishing. They started telling other people what they thought they knew and they converted alchemy into science. And we call that moment the Enlightenment. Right? So we have one experimental methodology for discovering whether your security works, and that's to tell people what you think you know, how you think it works. And we've short-circuited this with the DMCA for the last 17 years in, in a field in which increasingly everything is colonized by it. And so the security dimensions of that are historically underreported and becoming more grossly underreported as every day goes by. So what are we going to do about this? Well, the problem has been so far that the other side has always, get to, has always been able to pick the battles. They get to choose who they sue, so they get to choose only the cases that will keep the DMCA intact, and they can just pretend they don't see the cases that a judge would likely look on with disfavor. Now, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a civil liberties group that turned 25 this year, for whom I'm back working for again, um, EFF loves to change the law, not just by lobbying Congress, which is hard and slow and expensive, but by appealing to the judiciary through something called impact litigation. And the way that it works is if you're lucky enough to live in a country with a strong constitutional tradition, rather than convincing a majority of lawmakers to go against the people who funded their election campaigns and vote down a law that they'd previously passed, you can instead go to a judge, or a few judges, or in the Supreme Court, five judges, and convince five out of nine judges that Congress made a law that violates the Constitution. And no matter what law that is, and no matter how committed Congress is to it, that law is nullified by the, the Supreme Court. We've seen some pretty amazing Supreme Court cases and some pretty terrible ones in the last couple of years. We've seen how that can work. So uh, in 1992, EFF had its first amazing impact litigation victory. So in 1992, um, uh, it was illegal for uh, uh, normal people, people who weren't in the military, to use strong cryptography, cryptography that worked, that could keep your secrets. Because the NSA thought that um, if you could keep secrets from them, that you might get up to stuff that they would want to know about and they wouldn't be able to find out about it. So they prohibited civilian access to strong crypto. And there were a lot of arguments made about why this was a bad idea, the kind of arguments you'd, you'd think would, would woo Congress, right? Like the banking industry went to Congress and said, we really need to be able to protect uh, the authentication mechanisms between our servers and with our clients and to our head offices with strong crypto because, like, Chinese spies and Russian spies and the mafia don't follow your laws, and so if they can break into our stuff, uh, we, you know, we're really vulnerable. And Congress went to the NSA and they said, is this true? And the NSA said, no, nah, we gave them a really good cipher. They can use it. It'll protect them from everyone. So John Gilmore, who, who I don't know, is he here today? He booked me into this talk. John Gilmore is one of EFF's founders, designed a computer for a quarter million dollars that could exhaust all the possible keys for the cipher the NSA said we could use in two and a half hours. Right? So we took that to Congress, and they said, we don't care. Right? But then we found a mathematician, Daniel J. Bernstein, well-known as DJB, a, an eminent cryptographer today who was a grad student at UC Berkeley then, who on Usenet, which was like um, the web but angrier, uh, <laughs> on Usenet was publishing source code for strong crypto. Right? He was publishing the math behind strong crypto. And... In the Ninth Circuit, we argued that he had the right to do this because the First Amendment protected source code as a form of expressive speech. And the Ninth Circuit upheld us, and then the appellate division upheld us, and then the ban on strong crypto was struck down. 
So this is an amazing template, right? This is ninja policy making because you find the one weak spot in the other side's otherwise invulnerable uh, uh, wall and you attack them there and the whole wall comes down. Doesn't matter how many Congress critters they bought off. If you can convince a judge that it's unconstitutional, away goes the law. So um, in January, I joined EFF again after a 10-year hiatus. I used to be their European director. Uh, I took 10 years off to write novels, and I got more and more alarmed about this stuff, and I went back in January to help work on a project called the Apollo 1201 Project, which is a project to abolish all the DRM in the world within a decade, right? We do this not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Um, Thank you. So how are we going to do this? Well, people like you have ideas, right? You have things that you would like to make that probably violate the DMCA. In fact, if any of you are, are researchers working in computers and, and information security, you're probably already violating the DMCA. Lots of people do. They just don't talk about it. They publish papers in, like, mobile phone security where they say, like, I tested a bunch of apps to see what their security model was, but they never say how they got the apps. Because they got the apps by breaking the law, right? They, they jailbroke a phone, and then they extracted the apps from memory on the phone, and, they did, and then they subjected them to analysis. So nobody ever talks about this stuff. Um, some of you have found vulnerabilities that you haven't talked to anyone about. Um, we'd like you to come and talk to us. We'd like you to come and talk to us about how the ideas that you have, how the research that you've, that you've done can be expressed in scholarly circles in ways that are litigation-hardened and likely to survive a legal challenge. Because uh, if the other side sues you and you have the right facts, we can get rid of this law. And if the other side doesn't sue you and you publish and you are public about it, then we can embolden other people who've made discoveries like yours to come forward as well. And one way or the other, we get to get rid of the DMCA, right? Either they become so scared of suing us because they know that the minute they sue someone who's consulted with us and litigation hardened their strategy, they're in danger of losing the DMCA entirely. And so they never sue anyone or they lose patience and they sue someone and we get rid of the law. So one way or the other, we'd like you to come talk to us if you're a security researcher, if you're a programmer, if you're working in these spaces. Um, we have a target-rich environment today. For the last 15 years, the only people who could sue us under the DMCA were entertainment companies because they were the only ones using it. But today it's coffee pod makers and it's automakers and it's tractor makers and it's implanted medical device makers and it's tons of companies that have bet the farm, in, in John Deere's case, literally, on being able to control how you use your devices. And we just need one of them to be dumb enough to sue us, and we can make this law go away. And once the 1201 goes, once the prohibition on breaking digital locks goes, digital locks go too, because digital locks don't work, right? If, if for a digital lock to work, I have to scramble a message, and I have to give it to you, and then I have to give you a device in which I hide the keys to scramble the message, and then I have to trust that device to never tell you what the keys are. So like Netflix gives you a browser plugin that decrypts the videos while you're watching Netflix, but doesn't have a save button. And to stop you from making a save button, they have to make sure that you never figure out where in that plugin they hid the keys. Well, giving your adversary a thing that you've hidden keys in and hoping that that adversary never finds those keys has a technical term in security research. It's called wishful thinking, right? <laughs> We don't give adversaries the keys to our crypto for the same reason we don't hide safes in bank robbers' living rooms, right? Because it doesn't matter how great the safe is, if it's in the bank robber's living room where she has an electron tunneling microscope, that, that safe is eventually going to open up, right? And the same is true with all digital locks. They only work when it's against the law to tell people about their flaws. They don't work if people are allowed to subject them to analysis. And nobody wants 
digital logs, right? Nobody woke up this morning and said, do you know what I want? I want to read a book, but I want to do less with it, right? Do you know what I really want? I want to listen to some music, but I want music with fewer features. I wish my coffee pod took fewer vendors' coffee. I wish my insulin pump had fewer companies that made software that I could use to interpret its data. That's what I really need is less choice in the devices that have the power of life and death over me. Nobody wants this. In markets where people roll out digital locks and you're allowed to compete, those digital locks disappear immediately. Like with coffee pod makers, Keurig put coffee pod, uh, locks on their coffee pods. They're not very good pods, but some people use them, lots of people use them. A year later, their share price had fallen by 25%. Because in a market where people can choose, people don't choose the digital locks. It's only when Congress says, we will spend an unlimited number of tax dollars defending your dumb business model that it makes sense to put digital locks in your business model. So we're looking for hackers, we're looking for academics, we're looking for security researchers. Some of you work for tech companies that might be Worldwide Web Consortium, W3C members. So the W3C makes standards for the web. Last year, the W3C started to fold in uh, digital locks into standards for web browsers, making every web browser into a reservoir of long-lived digital pathogens that can fuck us in every conceivable way from asshole to appetite. And we're working on getting them to change that. If your company is a W3C member, talk to me. I want to talk to you about how we can work with you on this. Um, if you're a publisher or a writer involved in digital music and you sell your works in the digital marketplaces, we're working to get the FTC to force the vendors, the, the, the platforms, Amazon and Google and Apple, to start labeling those things as, as to whether they have digital rights management or not, as to whether they have locks or not. Because right now, if you want to buy a book that doesn't have digital locks on it, Amazon won't tell you whether or not the book has a digital lock on it or not. We want them to start labeling that stuff. So if you're involved in that, there's a letter you can sign on to. We're going to get the FTC to, to, to go to those companies and start twisting their arms. And then if you're a UX designer or UI designer or product designer, talk to me. I'm working on a project called the Catalog of Missing Devices, which is a catalog of all the things we could have if it hadn't been for this law on the books for the last 17 years, right? Because we want people to start realizing what they're missing. So my email address is Corey, C-O-R-Y, at EFF.org. So if you're involved in any of those things, talk to me. So the um, digital rights management and Section 1201 of the DMCA that make them possible have been a precancerous mole on the information society festering for 17 years. We are making a surgical strike against it that you can help us with. Not because the internet is the most important fight that we have, there are many fights that are more important than the internet, right? There's fights about gender equality. There's fights about racial equality. There's fights about climate change. There's fights about income inequality. And all of those fights are more important than the destiny of the internet, except that the internet is the battlefield on which all of those fights will be fought. There is no, uh, excuse me, oh, I've got so much dust in me. There is no uh, turf that is more foundational than that fight. If we're going to have all those other fights, we have to keep the internet free and fair and open. So uh, I'm going to close by talking to you about how you can help, even if you're not any of those kinds of people, uh, what you can do to help out. Um, so there are a lot of people who feel helpless because they know that every day they send a check to the cable company whose mission is to destroy the Internet as we know it and make network discrimination uh, a matter of fact. Or they know that they like their fruit-flavored devices that are locked in ways that uh, encourage this inkjet printer business model. Or they know that, you know, me, I, I put Linux on my, on my computers, but my computers are Lenovo computers, and Lenovo has become like the alpha and omega of spyware, right? Or you have to go to work at a company like Cisco that's helping spy on the whole world, or you go to work at Oracle that's 
trying to patent uh, our copyright APIs. Whatever it is, you may feel like there's nothing you can do because you're not living pure, right? And this is the crisis of vegetarianism, right? Every vegetarian eventually meets a vegan, and every vegan <laughs> eventually meets a fair trade vegan who eventually meets like a fruitarian who eventually meets a breatharian, right? And no one can be pure, and I'm not going to ask you to be pure, right? I'm not going to ask you to like live in a cave, build a computer out of like FPGAs that you write the firmware for, you know, only use Telnet and uh, ask other people to like proxy data to you and, uh, you know, reject all cookies. Like I'm not going to ask you to do that because you, you can't. And if you try to live that way, you won't be able to do all the things that you need to do to struggle on and all these fights that are important. But what I'm going to ask you to do instead is hedge, right? Hedging's not just for Wall Street. If every day you're opening your wallet and spending money with companies whose mission is to destroy the future we want to bequeath to our children, sit down one day and figure out how much money you're spending uh, on companies who are destroying the future we want to live in and figure out what percentage of that you're going to give to a group that's fighting to keep the internet free and fair and open. And not just EFF, although EFF is amazing, and you should be members of EFF, and you should join EFF. I'm a member and a donor to EFF, as well as someone who's become a staffer again this year. I was a staffer before. It's fantastic. I've worked for a lot of nonprofits. I've never seen one as well run as EFF. But there are lots of other organizations. There's the Free Software Foundation, and Public Knowledge, and Creative Commons. And for those of you in Europe, there's the EDRI, the European Digital Rights Initiative in, uh, in the Netherlands. There's Bits of Freedom. In the UK, there's the Open Rights Group. In Australia, there's EFF. Electronic Frontiers Australia. In Finland, there's Electronic Frontiers Finland. Um, in France, there's La Quadrature de Net. In every territory, and this is an amazing thing because 10 years ago, this wasn't true, but in every territory now, there are activist groups working on this. Pick some, pick all, and make a hedge and help us build the future we want to live in. Thank you. All right. So how are we doing for time? We have time for some questions. So my Q&As tend to be out of a sausage fest, and so I like to alternate between people who identify as women or non-binary and people who identify as men. And I remind you that a long, rambling statement followed by what do you think of that is technically a question, but not a good one. <laughs> Go. Um, who did the plaintiff have to be for the... So who could have been the plaintiff at the record company? Couldn't someone from the record industry have come and sued us? Like, couldn't we have cooked up a lawsuit where we have a researcher do something, we have a record company sue them? That's actually a thing in American jurisprudence. It's called a collusive lawsuit. And it's, it's legal. It is legal. And what, the way that it has to work, you have to have, have something called cause or controversy, right? So you need, there needs to be a real legal issue at, at hand. And what needs to happen is one party, uh, the, the plaintiff, needs to want there to be a determinative outcome. They want to know what the law is, but they don't care which way it goes. They just want to know which thing they should do. And then they can have standing to bring a collusive lawsuit. Dred Scott was a collusive lawsuit. But judges fucking hate them, right? And judges, you bring up a case in front of a judge, and they go, this feels like shenanigans, right? This feels like you guys are using me to do an end run around Congress. So... As much, it was a thing that various people, when I started this project and I called around all the legal scholars, a couple of them, especially in the academic world, were like, you need a collusive lawsuit. And then I talked to our legal staff and they were like, we shouldn't do a collusive lawsuit. Uh, any people who identify as male or non-binary? Uh, yes, sir. What's the legal status of using long PGP keys? That is absolutely legal. You're thinking of, the, of that Bernstein case. So before Bernstein, more than 50 bits was illegal. 
and now it's legal. Now you can have arbitrarily long PGP keys. The response to that, if you look in the Snowden docs, you'll see that the response was to start attacking the cipher systems and to start attacking the um, uh, uh, start attacking the endpoints, so inserting malware in the computers because they, the crypto is intact. I mean, this is an amazing thing about crypto that I think is underappreciated, which is that for the first time in the history of the human race, normal humans can make messages so secret that nobody in the world without physically coercing them or tricking them can find out what those messages say. And they can send them to other people. You can take the distraction rectangle in your pocket and you can like take a break from throwing pigs at birds and you can use it to scramble a message so thoroughly that if you turned every hydrogen atom in the universe into a computer and you set it to, do, to doing nothing but guessing keys until we ran out of universe, you would run out of time before you ran out of keys, right? This is an amazing thing. So, like, the internet won't solve all of our problems and it's not foreordained whether it's going to be a tool for surveillance or a tool for privacy, but it has the potential to make privacy happen in ways that have never existed on this earth before. So anyone who says, well, we've had other technological revolutions that didn't come out the way we thought, it's true, we have, but they weren't like this one. There is a different thing going on here. Are there any women or people who identify as non-binary who'd like to ask the next question? Yeah. Um, yes, I have a question about right. So, so the question is about fair dealing and other exceptions in copyright, and then, and, then, and then how that applies to the physical world, right? So you have the right to... Um, uh, uh, make fair uses of works. You've probably heard this term, fair use. So you're allowed to quote works for the purposes of criticism. You're allowed to uh, make duplicates of works for archival purposes. You're allowed to do lots of things. You're allowed to transcode things that are not even part of fair use, right? You're allowed to transcode works into assistive formats for people with visual disabilities. And what happens when a digital lock stops you? Are you allowed to circumvent the digital lock? So far, no, right? I mean, so far that the jurisprudence on this has been the other way. And in other jurisdictions where they've passed their own versions of the of the, of the DMCA, um, where they've made exceptions for this, the exceptions have been a joke. So in Norway, when they adopted the EUCD, which like they're not even in the EU, and they adopted the EUCD because that was because they make dumb decisions in Norway. Um, <laughs> Norway said you have the right to turn an ebook into a book that's in an assistive format for people who are blind, but only if you're blind, and you're not allowed to share your tool with anyone else. <laughs> Right? So blind people are each individual allowed to circumvent. So the question is, are you allowed to circumvent in other contexts when there's a copyrighted, when, when you have a, uh, an expectation under some other body of law, like perhaps there's a consumer rights uh, reason to believe that you have the right to do it, or contract law, there are limits to contract law, there's something called the doctrine of unconscionability, there's proportionality, you know, I can't, like the fact that I have a sign that says, you know, uh, at the very back of my store that says by entering the door I was allowed to hit you in the head and as soon as you come through the door I hit you in the head I say but it was a contract that doesn't make it a binding valid contract right so that, what about those limits you know to, to contract law well where we've heard those um, uh, where we've heard those cases argued they've always said actually the DMCA really doesn't allow you to circumvent an access control to a copyrighted work even if you don't do anything with that copyrighted work. So a good example, a couple of examples of this would be in the most recent triennial hearing. So every three years, the Copyright Office hears petitions for exemptions to this rule. And we just had one. And there were a couple of really interesting petitions. One was um, about the right to jailbreak cars. So uh, GM uh, intervened and they said, you shouldn't be allowed to uh, change the firmware in your car. We want to make sure that mechanics can only service your car if they've signed a contract with us. And then the contract with GM 
says um, you will only buy GM parts for your car. So obviously, like, there's a lot of competition law and, and practice that says it's not right for a manufacturer to be able to control the market and spares and, you know, fenders and windshield wipers and whatever. But uh, GM believes that the DMCA, because in order to find out what's wrong with a car and which part you need to replace, you have to circumvent an access control to the copyrighted firmware for the car, that they that, – that even though the fender is not copyrighted or the fuel injection system is not copyrighted or the pistons are not copyrighted, that the fact that to find out which of those you need to replace, you need to circumvent an access control, that it controls it. You know, GM used to have this advert, uh, that's not your father's Oldsmobile. It turned out that they weren't speaking metaphorically. They literally meant your father doesn't own that Oldsmobile. That's still our Oldsmobile, (laughs) even though we sold it to him. Um, And then, you know, John Deere makes tractors, and um, their tractors have firmware locks on them and again, like, tractors are not copyrighted works, and the thing that, the, the, um, that John Deere wants to protect has nothing to do with copyright. So they have torque sensors on the wheels, and they have GPSs. So they make centimeter-accurate surveys of the soil conditions of your field when you plow your field. Um, and they lock that data into the device, and then they transmit it back to John Deere without you being allowed to look at it, you, the farmer, being allowed to look at it. And what they do with that data is they sell it to seed companies. So if you want to have your tractor automatically disperse your seed in a way that's optimized for the soil density in your field, you have to buy your seed from Monsanto uh, because only Monsanto has the exclusive right to it. And then they also, because they have insight into soil conditions across whole regions, they um, play the futures market, right? They can make predictions about grain yields ahead of ahead of the game. And none of this is protected by copyright, obviously. But no one will argue that the firmware in a John Deere tractor is not copyrighted, right? And so because in order to achieve these lawful outcomes, like uh, all the other lawful outcomes that the Copyright Office has said, no, you can't circumvent for, like archiving or whatever, um, you have to circumvent an access control. The Copyright Office has said those, those, um, those rights that you have are trumped by the, pro- the absolute prohibition on circumvention. Now, I think you're right. I think that if we got the right case in front of the right judge, that a judge would say what you just said, right? This, this is like, this um, makes a nonsense of the law, right? Congress did not intend for a law that was supposed to let the entertainment industry region code its movies to go on to allow fridge manufacturers to region code their butter, right? And you could imagine that they, that, that might be something that a judge would say. The problem is that everyone who relies on the DMCA to restrict additional features in their products or functionality in their products gets to choose who they sue. And so they only sue the people from whom they think they're going to get a bad outcome, which is why we need a much wider pool of people advertising the fact that they're violating the DMCA after having first designed their product or project or research so that it, it is optimized for surviving a legal challenge under the DMCA so that we can goad some of these people into suing. And the thing that I think has changed is this target-rich environment. There's a lot more people out there who have standing now. And it's kind of the like inverse of the copyright troll problem. So like for a long time, the movie industry didn't sue everybody who was in a torrent st- swarm downloading a movie because they understood that that would just make them look like jerks. And then you got a, enough companies that had standing to sue over uh, BitTorrent downloading and do speculative invoicing where they send you an email that's, or a letter that says, we saw your IP address in the swarm. If you pay us $1,000, we won't sue you. Otherwise, and that's like more that le- uh, less than it would cost you to ask a lawyer whether you should give them $1,000. And so they collect this money on these speculative invoices. There are so many companies that have standing to sue 
whose works are being transmitted over BitTorrent and who have nothing else to lose because their movies did really badly. Like there was an Adam Sandler movie where they just started sending out speculative invoices in Australia that closed at the box in like four days, right? And, and it was just, you know, they found people who were torrenting it and that's the only business model they have left for this limited liability company they incorporated to make this one movie. And so they don't give a shit if it brings the studios into disrepute because they just want to maximize their return on this one movie. We now have this target-rich environment. There are lots of companies that don't care about the long term because they have no long term unless 1201 is intact. And if we can figure out how to gore one of their oxes, then they will come and sue us, even if the facts are not in their favor because it's the only option they have. And then maybe we can get the right facts in front of the right judge. Are there any men or people who identify as non-binary? Yes, in the back. How can you break the inkjet model? So the beauty of uh, anticipating that 1201 will not survive, that the DMCA will go away, is it turns what used to be a bug into a feature. So right now it's like really sad that everybody you know and you probably are buying things that have digital locks on them and that are locked up in ways that um, are destroying the future we want to live in, right? But as soon as it's legal to unlock that stuff as a third party, every one of those people is a customer for your product. So in other words, the more Netflix customers there are out there, the more customers there are for a Netflix PVR that defeats their digital lock, right? The more, uh, more K-Pod customers with DRM K-Pods there are, the more customers there are for third-party K-Pods that break their locks. The more GM customers there are, as soon as it's legal to break those locks. So design that product. Come and talk to us about how that product can be designed in a way that it's most likely to survive a 1201 challenge. If you're doing a startup, you only have two outcomes, right? Either you succeed or you die, right? Either you become huge or you die. So come talk to us about how, if you are commercially successful, you are most likely to be legally successful. We'll give you the best advice we can. Can't guarantee it, but we'll talk to you about, about how you can be someone who has the best chance of surviving a 1201 challenge, and then you can treat every one of those companies' margins as your opportunity. Right? That's Jeff Bezos, in a rare moment of candor, once told the publishers, your margin is my opportunity. The only reason you to use digital locks is to uh, maintain extraordinary margins that marketplaces would otherwise erode. Every one of those companies has a margin that's your opportunity. Right? Whether that's making a dongle that auto-jailbreaks an iPhone and subscribes it to another software store that you've created where you've gone and cherry-picked the thousand top apps out of the app store and offered them a 15% commission instead of a 30% commission, right? Or uh, something like jailbreaking cars so that you can get third-party parts or jailbreaking tractors or uh, PVRs for uh, Apple TV or any of those other things that are lawful, right, that are lawful to do, right? Like it is unequivocally not piracy for me to make a piece of software, give it to you to sell to her. That is not piracy, right? It, it does break the DMCA, but like it's the kind of question we want judges to answer. Is it piracy when someone who owns a copyright authorizes a, a, a second party to sell it to a third party is that, is that piracy? Like, what topsy-turvy universe is it in which creators who hold copyrights authorizing vendors to sell it to users is an act of piracy? That's, it's, that's, that's exactly the Humpty Dumpty question we want to put in front of a judge. Yeah. Right. So, the, Sorry, the question is about implanted medical devices. And this is a particularly rich field because it's very visceral. I mean, literally visceral, but also emotionally visceral. Um, and if we could get a collusive lawsuit, 
Yeah, talk about a death panel, exactly. I think a collusive lawsuit is still the wrong idea, not because it's not an urgent issue, but because collusive lawsuits are unlikely to get a legal victory. That's the problem with collusive lawsuits. It's not that the issue isn't serious, it's that the judge just won't give you the judgment you want. But there are a lot of medical devices that have serious problems. In the 1201 triennial at the Copyright Office, there was a researcher who's a type 1 diabetic who doesn't use a pump, even though self-injecting is un- unquestionably shortening his life. I mean, that's that's really clear, right? And uh, Humans are shitty lab techs, so, like... If, if you rely on yourself to assay your blood and uh, your blood sugar levels and then measure out your insulin dose and then squirt yourself, you will never do as well as like you know a $15 microprocessor in a little box that's attached to you. But he still pricks his finger because he's a medical researcher and he's looked at these things and he's like, these are unsafe at any speed. How do you raise people's awareness? Right. This is a really good wide issue, right? It cuts across a lot of political boundaries. People care about medical implants because, as you say, we all know someone who's alive today because of their medical implant. And we can viscerally see that um, when those medical implants are compromised, that the consequences are are literally grave, right? Um, I think that in some ways, and very tragically, this is self-correcting, in that um, there will be more and more horrible outcomes involving medical devices. And when those horrible outcomes arise people will become more alarmed about it. I, well, I'm kind of looking at, this is a very Canadian metaphor, skating where the puck is going. I think that there will be a steady drumbeat of infosec problems involving things like implanted medical devices. I want to be the person who's standing there going, are you worried about last month's horrific story about implanting medical devices? I've got a political program that will help us solve this issue. Maybe. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I, 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 I think that. Um, but I think that you're right, and this relates to privacy overall. I think that like we have not reached peak surveillance. Like there will be like our devices will add more surveillance and control to our lives as time goes by. That that's clearly going to happen. But I think what we have done is we've reached peak indifference to surveillance. Right? There will never be like a time in which fewer people give a shit about this stuff because from now on, more and more people will be directly affected by it. Right? Ashley Madison and the Office of Personnel Management were like, they were not, we have not reached, that was not like the zenith of leaks. Right? This was like the pregame show of leaks. Right? The Facebook leak, the Gmail leak, the the, the um, you know Hertz rent a car leak. Those are going to be the big shows, and there will be people who really urgently care about this. I think that in some ways, like drumming up anxiety about this problem is not the not the issue. It's being ready to capitalize on the anxiety when it arises. And it's true also of privacy technology overall. I think that like for a long time, getting people to give a shit about privacy was the hard problem. And then secondarily, it was making privacy technology that, that normal humans could use. Now the only problem is making privacy technology that normal humans can use because the pool of people who care about privacy is only ever going to go up. Um, and so we just that's all we need to do. How are we for time? How do I get my fair share of revenue uh, as an artist, as a copyright maker? So I'm, uh, as you say, I made my living for the last 10 years as a novelist. It's, you know, it's how I pay my bills. And um, I do worry about about making as much money as possible. But of all the ways that I fail to make money, the most significant relate to negotiating positions between me and my publisher and my publisher and the platforms that retail my products. Um, the, the deadweight losses, as far as anyone can, qu- can quantify them, from piracy are pretty small and redound on the... I'm so far down the food chain in terms of the actual, like, clearing royalty to me of every dollar spent on Amazon on my products that 
even you know modest piracy has almost no effect on my bottom line. I'm what I think we need to make as our policy priorities in terms of protecting artists is not making sure that a certain business model where you get to control how your works are distributed or who distributes them or whatever is like is is successful in the future. I think what we need to do is design policy so that no matter what business model it is that succeeds in the future, because the business models change as the technology changes, that the first in line to get paid are artists, and the second in line to get paid are the people who invest in our products, my publisher or record label, and the third are the people who format a file and put it on an e-commerce system like Amazon, right? Because, frankly, that should be a commodity role. Um, and right now, because of the DMCA, it goes the other way. So every time uh, one of my publishers sell, well, thankfully, none of my products are sold with DRM, but every if, if I were with a publisher that used DRM, every time Amazon sold one of my products locked with their DRM, because only Amazon can authorize that to be unlocked, if my publisher or I had a, a dispute with Amazon, like Hachette did, one of the big five publishers a couple of years ago, and said to Amazon, we are going to advise all of our customers to start buying their books everywhere but Amazon. And we're going to give them a tool to convert their existing libraries to run on all, everyone else's platforms. Amazon could say, no, I'm sorry. Only we get to authorize that. And we're not going to authorize that. And what we saw with Hachette is that they lost. And Hachette is not just a giant publisher. They're actually a giant arms dealer that owns a publisher. So you'd think that they would have read their Art of War, but apparently they missed the fact that when you let Amazon um, uh, alienate your customers from you and arrogate your customers to themselves, that they'd get to control the commercial relationship with the customer. So if we want to increase the share of income on every dollar spent on an e-commerce platform to the creator and the publisher, we need to get rid of this regime in which the platform vendor gets to control whether or not the lock can be unlocked. Right? So that's step one. But step two is, is the DMCA's takedown regime, where um, right now the DMCA allows, uh, um, uh, it has basically increased the amount of liability that intermediaries have to assume in order to make works available to the public. So when YouTube started, all you needed was a pile of hard drives and like three people in a garage and an unhealthy interest in video. And now you need all of that plus $100 million worth of compliance software to do automated copyright takedown, which has become the de facto standard for running a video hosting platform. What this means is that there's not a lot of YouTubes around, right? We, we've kind of reached like maturity in the, in the like I'll host your video in a really robust way for free market. And the only new entrants into the market are owned by other big companies that have the same victory conditions like Microsoft. And what that means is that if my publisher says, here's the best deal I'm going to offer you, I can't say, fuck you, I'm going to go do it on my own out here with the independents because the independents have become indistinguishable from the, the, the big five or the big four in records or the big five in, 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 um, in movie studios. Right? The new boss becomes the old boss when there's not competition in that regime. And by increasing the cost of entry, you decrease the competition. And this has literally happened in the case of YouTube where um, YouTube started a, a competitor to Spotify and Pandora to stream music. And they gathered the big four record labels into a room with them, and they negotiated the terms on which they would license the big four labels' music. And then they went to the indies, the small labels, and the independent artists who market their material through YouTube, and they said, you will take the terms set by the big four, or you can no longer use YouTube at all to promote your products. Right? The new boss has become indistinguishable from the old boss. What we need, if we're going to have consolidation in, um, in the publishing sectors and kind of the investors and creative works, we need to have uh, lots of independent options that represent a competitor of last resort. Right? The worst deal 
that the publishers can offer me has to be better than the best deal that I rationally expect I can get for myself by self-publishing. And when we increase the liability for all the services that enable self-publishing, we decrease the quality of the deal that I get when I self-publish. We make, I have to give more money to all the intermediaries that handle my payments, my marketing, my formatting, my sales, and my fulfillment. And so I want to make sure that we get the most money into the pockets of the artist no matter which artists are successful at any given moment, remember that being a successful artist is a Six Sigma event. Like most people who set out to make a living in the arts fail, we should be interested in like whoever succeeds making as much money as possible. And the way that you do that is by decreasing intermediary liability and making it um, such that uh, you can port your material from one vendor to another without any liability or lock-in. And that means that my negotiating position is always better. And so if my works are commercially successful, I can extract, I can get clear more money from every sale. That's, I think, the, the way that you do this. I don't think you can make a reliable business model for artists because Six Sigma events don't have reliable business models. Uh, one last question from a woman. Yes, go ahead. So copyright, the question is, will the DMCA fall at once or will it be in different domains, medical, automotive, tractors, or whatever? So copyright is, generally speaking, it's what lawyers call fact-specific. So copyright rulings tend to be very narrow and relate to very specific set of circumstances. But if we broadly found that source code, even when it's circumvented, was protected under the First Amendment, um, then we would have a really broad exemption. It would probably only cover people who publish source code as well as, as part of their product strategy, which incidentally means that people who make free and open source software that can be audited by third parties without having to decompile it would have a commercial advantage. Because if you made the Mozilla phone, you'd be able to add Netflix support without Netflix's permission because you publish your source code. Whereas if you made the Apple phone, you wouldn't because you don't publish any of your source code. So that would be a pretty interesting outcome generically. There would still probably be corner cases that were intact in 1201, but um, one of the interesting things about this is that everywhere in the world there are 1201 analogs because the U.S. trade representative has made 1201 equivalents a major priority in trade deals with the U.S., whether that's the Australia-U.S. free trade agreement or in Canada where I'm from, Bill C-11 um, was negotiated uh, or, or was, was passed after exclusive consultation with, with the U.S. trade representative and American entertainment companies and no consultation with Canadian artists or Canadian entertainment companies. Um, and it also has similar prohibitions. Um, but all of these countries have essentially said, we will not allow our businesses to get into these profitable lines of work uh, because America has covenanted that they will not get into these profitable lines of work either. So it's a suicide pact. But suicide pacts are mutual. And when the U.S. stops enforcing its side of the bargain, once we start eroding it through jurisprudence here, then all of those other countries are vulnerable to having their 1201 equivalents struck off the books because you have this confluence of the interests of activists who care about this stuff because they care about information policy and entrepreneurs and industry who just see a, a profit opportunity in it. And as we saw with... Um, uh, the fight over SOPA, and as we saw with the net neutrality fight, like it's sometimes, you know, usually you can handicap the outcome of a policy debate based on who's spending the most money, but as soon as you have the interests of activists aligned with one industry body, it becomes indeterminate. You, you, you don't know how it's going to come down until the coin lands, because activists are a wild card. So I think that that's going to be, that's, that, that is a thing where we can make a change everywhere in the world if we can get rid of it here. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
Over the course of the past few years, I've actually read about many of the things that Corey talked about here. But by putting them all together as he has done in this talk, well, he just blew me away. You know, it's as if I've been asleep for the past 10 years. This is a really important talk, not just for you, but for all of your friends as well. So be sure to make a copy of this podcast and pass it around. You know, it's free. There's no digital lock on it, and uh, the Creative Commons copyright agreement that's posted with it allows you to make all of the copies that you want. So I urge you to do just that. Take a copy to your teachers if you're still in school, and give copies to your children and grandchildren if you have any. The longer we go on, as we have been, just uh, whistling past the graveyard more or less, well, the more difficult it's going to be for any creative work to progress in the future that isn't owned and controlled by a rich corporation. You actually need to do something about this yourself. And you can begin by going to EFF.org and becoming involved. So, I urge you to do at least two things right now. First of all, listen to Corey's talk once again and take some notes about ways in which the things that he speaks about can affect you in your own life. Then go to EFF.org, click their Take Action link, and become involved. This isn't something that you can put off until a better season. The threat to your freedom is real, and you can't count on anybody else to protect you. This is a do-it-yourself situation, so go do something. And to begin a discussion among us Salonners, I've started a new forum on our Find the Other site, which you can get to from our salon's main site, which is psychedelicsalon.com. The new forum is called Digital Freedom. And, as you know, we are now in our final week of free lifetime charter subscriptions to that site. And beginning November 1st, for everybody except students and former Pledge Drive contributors, there's going to be a $12 a year charge to participate in the forums. And hopefully there's going to be enough people who join each year that I won't have to do any more of those uh, annual pledge drives to cover the expenses of producing and publishing these podcasts. Actually, there have already been hundreds of saloners who have joined us online, and I hope that you're going to do so as well. For now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends.